encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, and for those of you who may be uh, with us for the first time or visiting or back after you've been gone for a while, we're going through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and so we're kind of covering some large chunks of Scripture. I encourage you to be reading these on your own uh, during uh, the week. We're going to, Lord willing, be finishing up the book of Exodus next week. But uh, today, we're in Exodus 32, and uh, as you turn there to Exodus, uh, just another couple of reminders, kind of reemphasize some things that Ben said earlier. Uh, First, we would love to have you come back out this evening to the church building on Dutch Lane and be a part of our Sunday evening service, Uh, Kevin Martin's teaching, and we're talking about the the marks of a healthy church, so it's always fun to, to have our very blessed to have our elders teach some of these things, talking about what a healthy church is and what a healthy church does. So come back out this evening for that. Uh, Then also, just want to encourage you, you may have seen there in the weekly, an opportunity to be baptized. And so if you haven't been baptized, we'd love for you to consider to be obedient to the Lord in that area. And then also, just just note there, it's also in the weekly, but kind of take note of this, three three weeks from today, We're going to be doing our Sunday morning service at our church building. If you come here three weeks from today, you will be part of a dance competition and not a worship service. So just know that's what's going on here, and uh, be sure to join us at our church. It's it's now an annual thing, kind of an annual uh, deal where we are able to celebrate uh, the Lord's Day at our church building. So three weeks, just kind of be aware of that. We'll say it a bunch. If, you're, if you do forget, show up here, there'll be someone to say, hey, we'll point you back toward the church. Let's, uh, let's turn, oh, they're, they're in Exodus 32, and I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning of 32, and then read a little bit from chapter 34. And so if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, Exodus chapter 32, <clears throat> and beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Moses tells the Lord, or the Lord tells Moses what's happening. In verse 10, the Lord says to Moses, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? 
Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoke of bringing on his people. The rest of chapter 32, we see the aftermath, the sin, Moses' response, and we see Aaron's failed leadership described in more detail. In chapter 33, God tells the people to leave Mount Sinai, but that he won't go with them. Moses' relationship with God is described there. Moses intercedes for the people. And then in chapter 34, we see the covenant renewed. But before that takes place, Moses asks God to see his glory. And then in verse 5 of of Exodus 34, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. And Father, as we turn to look at your word more carefully, I pray that you would go before us here, help our our hearts to understand and know, believe these things. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. For our honeymoon, Whitney and I went to St. Thomas Island. And it was a a wonderful week. My grandmother graciously helped pay for a a stay at a lovely hotel there. We rented a car. It was the first time either one of us had rented a car before, so it was a little bit scary. But we convinced them to to rent us a car. And we we drove around the island. We saw the different things there. We took a trip to St. John's Island and explored there. We walked along the beach, we went snorkeling, we went out to eat each night. It was just a, a, again, just a wonderful time. Now, imagine that someone came to me and said, Daniel, I would like to give you an all-expenses-paid trip back to St. Thomas. You will stay at the same hotel, you'll get another rental car, you'll drive around the island, you'll get to enjoy long walks on the beach, you will get to go snorkeling, visit other places, eat out at all the same restaurants. Uh, the, only, the only difference is uh, uh, Whitney can't go with you. Now, how, how appealing would that trip be to me? The answer is not all that appealing, right? I mean, the places would be the same, but without Whitney's presence, without her being with me, it would, it would just be a trip. It, it wouldn't be a, 
a vacation. I would rather sit at home in my living room with Whitney and and the kids than be on a tropical island by myself. Her, Her presence is what makes it enjoyable. I, when I was single, I, I used to love to watch TV by myself. I'd, I'd go to the movies sometimes by myself if there was a movie that I wanted to see. But, but, but now, I would rather watch a, a mediocre TV show with the kids than a good TV show by myself. And I do. A lot. When I'm listening to a, a, a podcast or something, I'm on a run, I'm kind of listening to a podcast, or I'm in the car and I'm listening to something, I'm like, oh, that... Um, one of the kids would like to hear this, and I'll, I'll stop listening to it, and, and, and I, w- I want to experience them, experience this with the kids, because I think they'll get something out of this. It, it drives them crazy, but um, there's something, there's, there's enjoyment in being with someone I love to, to experience this thing. Again, with, if, if Whitney's not on a, not at a place with me, it's, it's just, it's just a trip. It's not a vacation. It's not pleasurable in the same way. Now, for the Christian, for those of us whose hearts have been transformed by the Gospels, we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. We should be able to say, without the presence of God, life isn't life. Unless God is in whatever I'm doing, it's not worth doing. There's not joy in this activity if God isn't or can't be a part of it. And so if if I'm engaged in in work and I don't experience the presence of God, if, if I'm engaged in a hobby or an activity that God isn't or can't be engaged in, I should be able to say that this isn't where joy is found. This isn't where delight is found. And if I can engage in, in work, if I can engage in activity, if I can in, engage in, in, in pursuing something and say that this is where joy is found and God isn't in it, what I need to understand is this is actually idolatry. This is actually idolatry because what I'm saying is I can find joy, significance, delight in something that isn't God. And for the Christian, we understand joy, significance, delight is found in God and God alone. Now, here's the problem. All of us are idolaters. All of us have have at times said, you know what, I'm going to find my significance in this thing. I'm going to to find my joy in this activity instead of God. I'm going to to find delight in this instead of finding delight in God. I'm going to find deliverance from meaninglessness in in this thing instead of in God. All of us have done it. Now, on what basis can we ask God for forgiveness from idolatry and have confidence that we are in right relationship with him again? How can, we, how can we have confidence that we can experience God's presence if we've been guilty of idolatry? And if you've never wrestled with that question, perhaps you haven't understood the depth of your own sin and the depth of how blasphemous idolatry is. In the story we're looking at this morning, the people of Israel engage in idolatry. And there is a a huge problem 
instead of finding salvation and deliverance from God, they, they turn to idols for salvation and delight and deliverance and significance. And, and as they do that, they face the danger of God's wrath. And even after the danger of God's wrath is dealt with, they, they face the danger of going into the promised land apart from the presence of God. And is the promised land the promised land if God isn't there? Listen to what we read in Psalm 106 as, as the psalmist describes what takes place in the story that we're looking at. So this is written hundreds of years later, and this is what the, 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 the psalmist is saying about what took place in this story It says, the people of Israel made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So in other words, they forgot about God and the joy and delight in his presence, and instead they turned to the image of an animal that eats grass. It says in Psalm 106, verse 23, it says, Therefore God said that he would destroy them, but something happened. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them? What did Moses say? What did Moses do? In other words, here are the people of God engaging in in this idolatry. Here's here's the wrath of God. And Moses says something. He does He intercedes. He stands in the breach. What is it that he does? On what basis does he say, God, don't do this. Instead, allow them to enjoy your presence and experience the delight of relationship with you again. What is it that Moses does? It's an important question for us to consider because we need to understand on what basis can you and I Those of us who are sometimes guilty of idolatry, of finding joy, delight, salvation, and something besides God, how can those of us who are idolaters at at moments, or they struggle with the sin of idolatry, how can we have confidence that we can come into the presence of God? This morning we're going to kind of explore this, this idea. We're going to see that God's zeal, his passion for his own glory is the basis of our confidence that we can be in his presence. God's zeal, his passion for his own glory is our basis for confidence that we can be in his presence. You say, Daniel, what does that mean? Hopefully you'll understand what that means as we kind of unpack this together. But what I'm saying is the fact that God is, is, is passionate about his own glory gives us confidence that we can boldly come before him and experience his presence. You say, how does all that work? Hopefully you'll see as we kind of explore this story together. And what we're going to do is, we're, and we're looking at a lot of chapters, so we're going to kind of see the, the big idea of, of a section of this, of this portion of Scripture, and then we're going to look at a couple of verses more in depth and then go to the next section, look at some things more in depth, and then the third. Here's, here's the first thing that I want us to think about. Number one, God's glory is violated by our idolatry. God's glory, this glory that God is so passionate about, is, is violated by our 
idolatry. Look, look there at the story and look what happens first. It says, the people, these are the Israelites, they saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. So Moses has been on the mountain for over a month and the people begin to get a little bit restless. They want Moses there. They want a, a physical representation of God. Remember, they're coming from an idolatrous culture, the, the Egyptian culture, and so they have all these Egyptian gods. They're going to be going into an idolatrous, idolatrous culture, and they, they aren't happy. They gather themselves, it says up in verse 1, together to Aaron. So Aaron's in this position of leadership while Moses is gone. And listen to what they demand. They say, we want you to make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, when they say, we don't know what's become of Moses, what they're really saying is, we don't really like these circumstances. God has been very clear. Remember, just just earlier, they had ratified this covenant with God. They had said, okay, this is what you want us to do, God? Absolutely, we are going to do that. And now, they say, "We, we don't know. In other words, they mean, we don't like what's taking place. And because we don't like what's taking place, we're going to say we don't know, and we believe that gives us some sort of justification for acting in a different way. Moses said one thing, we don't know what's happened to him, and so now we have an excuse to do something different. We want you, Aaron, to make us gods who will be with us, physical representations of deity in our midst who will will go before us as we do life. And Aaron, in an act of absolute failure of leadership helps him fashion this this guy. He says, give me the gold from your wives and your children. He takes their gold. He fashions it, this this gold, into a, a golden calf. And really, it's, it's that, that word refers to a, a young bull, kind of this, this bull at the beginning of its, its strength and vitality. And the leaders, apparently here, of, of the people see this this image, and they kind of project on it this, this polytheistic idea of, of deity, and the people hold up this, this image, and they proclaim to one another this blasphemous statement. They say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, do you understand the significance of what they're saying here? Remember what we've learned already as, as we've talked about the Exodus. God takes his people and he powerfully works to bring about their salvation and, and he brings them up out, out of Egypt. And as we saw, this picture of God bringing his people out of Egypt and delivering them is a, is a picture used throughout Scripture of God's salvation. God is a God who takes people who are in bondage to sin and by his power, he delivers them. He, he saves them. And what the people here are saying is they're saying that salvation deliverance is found not in, in Yahweh God, but it's found in this, in this golden young bull, this golden image of a, of a young bull. Salvation, deliverance from sin and, and sin's bondage, significance, glory, delight, joy, it's, it's found in this, in this thing, this, this 
animal that eats grass, that's where salvation is found. That's what the people are, are proclaiming. It is absolute blasphemy. And Aaron, and again, another failure of leadership, goes along with it. And what Aaron tries to do, it, it seems to me, and what takes place next, is he, he takes their idolatrous conception of these, of these gods, and he tries to, to marry it with an understanding of who Yahweh God is, the true God. Look what, look what it says he does. It says he sees this. Verse 5, he, he sees what these people are proclaiming about salvation being found in this, this golden image. And he then builds an altar before it. And he, he makes a proclamation. He says, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And so a lot of the things that they're doing in relationship to this golden image are exactly what God told them to do to him. And really, there are some, in the people's mind now, some striking similarities between this golden image thing and Yahweh. This is the God who brought them out of Egypt. This is a God that you um, call Yahweh, as Aaron does. This is a, an, a God you build an altar before, and you offer these sacrifices, and you have a feast. He's doing all, very similar things that God said to do him. Aaron's trying to kind of bring these things together. Now, I, I hope that none of us would be so blasphemously foolish as to say that this image, this, this golden calf, this young bull, this and, and God are the same. None of us would be that foolish, right? None of us would, would, would say such a, an incredibly foolish and blasphemous thing. And yet, what I would suggest to you is that, that many of us attempt to be Aaron in the North American, even the Central Illinois Evangelical Church. We, we try to take kind of this, this false God that's in the culture around us and, and take some things about the true God and kind of mesh those things together. And, and I don't want to say this in a, a, a harsh, uh, prideful way. I hope you, you hear my heart of humility and yet at the same time my, my heart of conviction about us grasping this truth. We often... We often do this, for example, how else do you explain the, the fact that the evangelical church is willing to, to promote conceptions of God that are, that are idolatrous, that, that we're able to use a, a movie, a, a book about God that, is, that has a, a horrendous conception of who he is, written by a person who has denied central tenets of the Christian faith, and yet we're, we're willing to call that God. So, you know, it has some similar characteristics to God. Let's, let's just try to see the similarities. Or that we're willing to, to sit down with, with people from other faiths, and I think we should have relationship with people from other faiths. I think we should love them. I think we should foster friendships, and yet we're willing to say, you know what, your God is similar to our God, so let's, let's just kind of say that they're the same God. Brothers and sisters, we're, we're guilty of the same thing that Aaron is. It, when we do that? Or how else do you, do you say, you know what, um, 
and, and really, we, we go through the, the, the same pattern that they did. They said, okay, we don't, we don't know, and, and really what they mean is we don't like something about God. And because we're kind of confused, we're going to say, okay, this is God. And then we're going to, to worship on the basis of our new understanding of who God is, and then it's going to produce idolatrous fruits. In fact, look at the text. It says they engaged in, in, this, in this worship, and it says, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that word play there refers, I think, to, to debauchery, to, to immorality, to this, this wanton lack of restraint. And you see it throughout the chapter described in those terms. So they, they say, we don't like something about God. We don't know. We don't like something about God. Therefore, we're going to create this new understanding of God. And then the, the fruit of that worship, even though we're still calling it God, the fruit of that worship is going to reveal that it's not a, a true God. And you and I, we do the same thing. We take this, this thing about who God says he is, and we say, mm, I, don't, I don't understand that. I don't understand how God says that about sexuality. I don't understand how God says that about materialism. And so I'm going to kind of create this new God, and I'm going to still call him God of, of, of Scripture. But this God... The fact that it's a false God is, is revealed by our fruit. When we say, it's okay to me, for me to live in this way, this, in disobedience to Scripture. It's okay for me to have one foot in, in the world and one foot in the church. It's okay for me to not care about those who are in need because the God I worship doesn't really care about showing compassion. That's idolatry. And what we're doing is we practice idolatry is we're saying, okay, here's, here's who God is. Here's, here's his presence. Here's where joy and salvation is found. And instead of saying joy, salvation is found in, in who God says he is, I'm going to pursue something else. I'm going to pursue this career. I'm going to, and I'm going to say salvation is found in that. I'm going to pursue this friendship. I'm going to pursue this, this family member. I'm going to pursue this, this thing that could be a good thing, but I'm going to make it a God and say this is where joy, salvation, satisfaction, delight found. And what does that do? When we say that that's where salvation and joy and delight are found, what it does is it violates God's glory. Because we're not saying that he's the one where joy, delight, satisfaction is found. Let's go on. Here's the second thing I want us to see. The second thing I want us to see is that God's glory is, is vindicated by his mercy. Remember, we're saying that, that God's zeal for his own glory is our basis for confidence that we can be in his presence. Now, how, how does that work? How does God's glory relate to his mercy? Look at what Moses says next. Now, in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 32, God has, has told Moses what's taking place. And in verse 10, he says, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn, burn hot against them. That phrase, let me alone, is kind of this, this idiom that means you, you need to figure out how you're going to respond to me or, or else I'm going to consume them in order that I may make a, a great nation of you. And I think God's challenge here to Moses is you need to declare some things to me that somehow cause me to turn away my, my wrath against his people. And Moses at this point knows that he is in a, a tight spot. The people here who have just agreed to walk with God in obedience have now completely walked away from God in disobedience. They have broken almost every one of the ten words, the ten commandments that God had given them. 
what's Moses' sales pitch going to be? <laughs> Those of you who know me well know that I'm a, a terrible salesperson, right? I, I could have like a genie lamp in my hand uh, for $5, and I'd feel kind of bad about selling it to you. I'd feel very you know, self-conscious. I don't know, maybe you want this, maybe you don't. I, I could have life-saving medicine in my hand, that I'm giving to you at a loss, and I'd feel still kind of uncomfortable about, about selling something to you. It's just, it's just not, I'm just not very good at it. My youngest daughter, I think, is going to be a great entrepreneur, potentially. I mean, she, she it just has, she's kind of a shy person in many settings, but you kind of get like a, some, something to sell in her hands, and, and she, she becomes a totally different kid. She, <laughs> She will just go up to people on the sidewalk and try to sell them things. It's very awkward for me. Um, she's trying to get it. She's trying to raise money for a guinea pig right now, and she has like a little picture of a guinea pig on a box. And she goes out there with these boxes of, of bows and she sells them to people, or tries to sell them to people. And it's it's very uncomfortable for me. But she is totally totally okay with it. And what she's and I think this is true of all good salespeople. She believes in her product, right? I mean, she believe, she'll talk to me about these bows and how beautiful they are and how everyone wants a bow. And she truly believes, I mean, guy or girl, you're going to want these bows because they're so lovely, right? She can sell it because she believes in her product. Now, imagine you're Moses here. What's your product? The Israelites. And the Israelites have just violated this covenant with God and violated his glory. And, and now Moses has to sell the Israelites to God. What do you say if, if you're in Moses' situation? Well, they've, um, I mean, their personality, uh, I mean, they are hard work. Well, they're stiff-necked. Um, they're rebellious, kind of obstinate. They forget about you really quickly. What is Moses gonna gonna What, what is Moses gonna say? What's What's the selling point for these people? L- look at what he does. He doesn't base his appeal for God's mercy on the, the product, the people. He bases his appeal on God Himself. Look at what he says. He, he says. Lord, why does your wrath, this is verse 11, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? In other words, um, the presence of the people here, where they are right now in this place, screams your glory because they're here because of your power. He goes on. Why should the Egyptians say, verse 12, with evil intent, Did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. In other words, your name is is at stake here because if you destroy this people, the Egyptians will hear about it and will cause you to, to look less glorious. They'll question your intent. He goes on. 
Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. The Lord relented. Now, what does Moses say? He says, look, their presence here is a sign of your power. If the Egyptians hear that you destroyed them, it'll make your name look bad because these are your people. And, he says, this is about your reputation and your word being at stake because you have made a promise. Moses does the only thing he can and the only thing we can. He makes it not about the worth of the people, but the worth of of the glory of the name of God himself. He very wisely kind of, (laughs) the people of Israel to the side. It makes it all about God and his glory in terms of why God should act mercifully to this people. At the biblical counseling conference, uh, someone came up to me after I had presented and said, um, you know, I don't get this thing about God being passionate about his own glory. And it was very, very kind of pushed back some things that I'd said in a very kind way, really trying to grasp. I don't understand. How can God be so zealous for his own glory? Isn't it, isn't it kind of prideful? Of, wouldn't that be prideful of God to, to focus so much on himself? I said, well... First of all, we have to remember this. God is truthful, right? And so for God to think that I'm better than he is would would be contrary to fact. I'm not better than he is. For God to value me more than himself would mean that he has an incorrect understanding of value. He is the most valuable being in the universe. And so because he's truthful, he has to confess that and recognize that. And I said also this, and, and this is what I want us to see here. The idea that God is is passionate about and zealous for his own glory isn't a bad thing for me. It is a good thing for me. If God were not passionate about his own glory, I would be in a lot of trouble. And if God were just focused on me and my intrinsic worth, I would be in a lot of trouble. But here's what God does in his infinite mercy. God ties his glory to, to my salvation. It's an amazing thing. God, God says with, with his promise, if, if you cry out to me, if you place your faith in, in me and in, in my son Jesus Christ, I will save you. I will deliver you. He ties the, 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 his righteousness and the, the power of his word and his, his truthfulness to, to me. And, and so as, as he saves me, it reflects on his glory. God's glory is vindicated, is, is proven, is, is is found right by his mercy. That's what Moses understands here. And that's my hope, and that's your hope as well. If the story of our relationship with God was just based on our goodness, we'd be toast. But the good news is that God forgives based upon the glory of his own name. And the story here continues for the Israelites because God is glorious, and that glory is vindicated by his mercy. Here's the last thing that I want us to see. God's glory is, is viewed 
through his compassion. God's glory is viewed through his compassion. Now, what happens next? In chapter 32, there's, there's a reckoning for the sin. There's, there's, there's punishment on the part of, of Moses. There's Aaron's failed leadership. All those things we mentioned earlier. Then in, in chapter 33, because of God's mercy, he, he doesn't annihilate them. He allows the story of salvation to continue. But the relationship hasn't been restored yet. And in chapter 33, God says, yeah, you guys go on ahead, but, but I'm, I'm not going to be with you. My, my presence isn't going to go with you. And the people mourn as they hear that. Because the promised land isn't the promised land if God isn't there. It's a great thing to think about, right? If God said, yeah, you can go on and you can be successful in your work, you can be successful with your family, you can be successful in that whatever endeavor of life you want to be, the only problem is I won't be there, would that be enough? Would you even notice if God withdrew his presence from you in the endeavors you pursue. For the people of God, for the Israelites, they recognize, they recognize that's not enough. The promised land, all the milk and honey we can have, is not satisfying without God's presence. They mourn. Chapter 33 talks about Moses' relationship with God and his experience of God's presence in verses 7 through 11. And then Moses intercedes again for the people in verse 12. He says, look, God, um, you say that that I'm in this right relationship with you. And then he says in verse 13 now, this is uh, 33, verse 13. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. God says, my presence will go with you, I'll give you rest. But Moses, Moses persists in verse 15. He says, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses' confession here is so right and exactly what each of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ should understand as well. Look, God, if we're in the land this land flowing with milk and honey, and you're not there, it's not enough. Our identity, our, who we are, our distinctiveness is found in our experiencing your presence. And if your presence isn't there, we're nothing. It's the, the nature of, of who we are, the, the fact that we are distinct is that we are to be your people, your presence is supposed to be there, and, and, and we're proclaiming you to others. And Moses says, I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory so that I can know that you are going to be with us. Please show me your glory, he says in verse 18. And God says, I I will. I'm going to allow my goodness to pass before you. And we come to chapter 34 and we we see this, this sign of God's glory given to Moses. Now, how do you think that is going to be manifest? Remember the story. The people have violated God's glory. God's glory, though, is dependent upon his mercy. Now, if you wanted to show someone your glory, what would you do? If you were God and you wanted to show Moses your glory, what might you do? You might take Moses and 
maybe fling him out into the farthest reaches of the universe and allow him to see the expanse of the heavens. Maybe you would allow him to see your glory by another show of strength and, and power. But God, to show Moses his glory, he, he causes Moses to hear him say these things. And, and look, at, look at verse 6. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. And I want you to notice three things here. First of all, listen to what the Lord says about who he is. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, is a God merciful. In other words, he's, he's a God who's, who's compassionate. He's a God who's gracious. He acts towards us in a way that is beyond what is reasonable for us to expect from him. He extends grace. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in, in steadfast love. And I have, I have no plans to get a tattoo, but if I ever do get a tattoo, it's, it's going to be of the, of the word that he uses here, chesed. It's, it's God's steadfast love. It's a love that is unending. It's a love that is persistent. My friend has a chesed tattoo, that, that word in Hebrew. It's super cool. And because it, it describes this aspect of God's character that is essential for us to, to know and believe and to understand and for to rightly understand who God is at all. And God says, okay, that, that's, that's who I am. I'm that. And I'm, I'm also, he says, faithful. That's who I am. Now, what does God do? Verse 7, he keeps steadfast love for thousands. And listen to this, brothers and sisters, if, if you're struggling in your relationship with God, you say, I'm, a, I'm an idolater. I'm a person who, who doesn't understand God. I don't experience his presence. Listen, listen to what he says. This is what God does. It says that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. God says to Moses, you want to see my glory? You, you want to behold my glory? And again, this is after the people have sinned. He says, here's, but before the covenant's been renewed, here's, here's, here's how you see my glory. You see it in my compassion. Who am I? I'm a compassionate God. What do I do? I forgive sin. What is God doing here? God is proclaiming his glory to Moses by proclaiming the gospel. You say, well, how is this the gospel? Well, there's one more thing that God says here, and 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 it's kind of a, oh, wait, what? what?" Listen to what God says next. He says, this is who I am. I'm compassionate. What do I do? I I forgive sins, but what do I not do? He says, he doesn't let sin remain undealt with. He says, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children and the third and the fourth generation. What does that mean? It means if someone sins, that sin has to be dealt with. And even if that person sins and the sin's dealt with and their son sins, that sin has to be dealt with. What about the, the grandson of this person? If that person sins, yeah, that sin still has to be dealt with. The great-grandson, yeah, that sin still has to be dealt with. Now, here, here are three things then about God that God is saying to, to Moses here to, to see his glory. Okay, I'm a this is who, who I am. I'm compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm faithful. I'm, this is chesed. What do I do? I forgive. What do I not do? I don't leave sin undealt with. So wait, wait a minute. How do those things go together? Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. 
earlier, Moses, as he intercedes with God, he, he makes this statement. He says, look, if you need to blot my name out of the book of life, and, and God says, nope, not going to do that. In other words, Moses, you don't have the ability to intercede for people. Uh, Paul, earlier, whenever he was praying, Paul Graham was uh, mentioned that the passage from 2 Corinthians 3 where it talks about Moses with a veiled face and then Jesus being even superior to Moses. Um, Moses doesn't have the ability to deal with sin. God is going to renew the covenant because he is a God who is compassionate. He is a God for, who forgives, but he's also a God who's going to deal with sin. And how does he do that? He does that in, his per, in the person of Jesus Christ, which all the book of Exodus is pointing toward. Brothers and sisters, God renews his covenant with his people, not because of his people, but because of himself. And our hope for joy and delight and satisfaction is not found in ourselves, but it's found in God. Our hope of delight and joy and significance and, and escape from meaningless isn't found in idolatry. It's found in the presence of God. And you and I should desperately long for the presence of God. You say, okay, I, I do long for the presence of God. I want God to be with me in my work. I want God to be with me with my, my children. Just like going on vacation without your wife is just a, a trip. I, I want to be, be in God's presence. I, all those things, I want to experience God. But, but how can I have hope that I will? Because I'm an idolater. How can I have hope that God will forgive and that God will be in this? You can have hope because of God's passion for his glory. God is a God who is who he is. And who is he? He is compassionate. He is merciful. He shows steadfast love toward you. And he is a God who completely and totally deals with sin. How does he do it? In the person of Jesus Christ. So we can have forgiveness and experience his presence. I encourage you, just some of us, as we think about God's relationship with us, we, we fail to understand what it really means that he's glorious. God is glorious in, in all aspects of his being, but, but here he reveals himself, his glory, his compassion. Meditate upon these things. His compassion that shows and reveals itself in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me pray as we close, and, and then I'm going to, to pray the prayer of benediction. And Heavenly Father, we, we do recognize your, your great power in your Son, Jesus, a, a compassion that we don't deserve, a grace that is beyond what any reasonable person would expect from you, and yet we rejoice that you are who you are because we are who we are, and, and we are flawed, frail people who only have the ability to, to be forgiven because of your graciousness and, and, and become people who are instruments of praise for you. Allow us to pursue that. We pray this in your son Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. Again, I uh, encourage you to come back uh, this evening for our, our Sunday evening service. It's going to be a great time of worshiping the Lord together. And let's pray the prayer of benediction this morning. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forevermore. And God's people said with joy, amen. Have a wonderful day in the Lord.